0: Crooked's go-to legal podcast, Strict Scrutiny, will be recording live at Howard University, and you can now join via live stream on June 9th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Join hosts Leah Littman, Kate Shaw, and Melissa Murray live as they provide in-depth, accessible, and irreverent analysis of the Supreme Court and its cases, culture, and personalities. Get your live stream tickets today by heading to crooked.com slash strict live. And while you're already scrolling the internet, head over to the Crooked store to pick up some new Strict Scrutiny merch. From clean water to food safety standards to pandemic preparedness, public health saved your life today. At the DeBeaumont Foundation, they create practical solutions that improve the health of communities across the country, enabling everyone to achieve their best possible health. To learn more about how advancing policy, building partnerships, and strengthening systems can make a difference, visit DeBeaumont.org. President Biden is set to appoint Dr. Mandy Cohen as the U.S.'s 20th CDC director. Congress reaches a deal to avert a default crisis, with some important implications for health. A new report from the CDC shows that 40% of foodborne illness outbreaks at restaurants begin with sick workers. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul al sayed Alone. Secluded and with nothing but a screen to connect you to the outside world. If this defines your pandemic experience, you're not alone. The pandemic tore millions of people away from the things they know and love, forced us to, quote, socially distance from the very thing that's probably most important for our mental health. Other people. For me, I was lucky. We sheltered in place with family, moving in with my in-laws who helped care for our then two-year-old while we struggled to work from home. At one point, we had eight people in the home. Don't get me wrong. I missed all my friends and family whom the pandemic kept from me, but I wasn't nearly as isolated as folks stuck in an apartment alone. The impact of the pandemic was particularly bad for folks in the most social period of their lives, in their youth. So much of the experience of being young is dictated by our interactions with other people. And the pandemic hit just as the spring of 2020 came in, ripping young people away from so many of the social landmarks that define the average American young person's experience. Prom, graduation, summer vacation... But while it's on vogue to blame the pandemic for the rise in teen mental illness, it's been happening for a lot longer than that. Between 2008 and 2017, the percentage of teens experiencing depression jumped 63%. Rates of teen suicide nearly doubled in the two decades between 1999 and 2019. Here, I want to pause and remind everyone that if you or someone you love is struggling, make sure to get help. The number is 988. Again, that's 988. Please. So it's not just the pandemic. These trends preceded the pandemic by at least a decade. So what's up? Well, it has a lot to do with an announcement from the Surgeon General that we talked about last week.
1: For decades, there's been that Surgeon General's warning on packs of cigarettes. But this morning, for the first time, a new warning about something else. Social media and what it means for kids' mental health. Let me
0: age myself here. I remember when, quote, the Facebook first dropped. I was a freshman in college, one of the first 10,000 people on the site. This was the end of 2003, and all of us thought this website, where we could keep in touch with our friends when we weren't together, was just the absolute coolest thing. But like most of my friends, I had a flip phone. The iPhone wouldn't come out until I graduated college in 2007. Laptops were a luxury. So while the Facebook was a nice distraction from getting work done when you were at a computer, it wasn't at the palm of our hands and the top of our minds. Fast forward a decade to 2013, Social media isn't relegated to the Facebook anymore, which, by the way, now has 1.23 billion users, but a plethora of new sites, all competing for our eyeballs and eardrums. More than half of American adults have a smartphone, putting wireless internet and social media in their pockets, making that competition so much more vicious. Already, social mores are shifting around this new normal. More of the interactions we would have had in person are shifting online. And that was 2013, a decade ago. And that's also the point at which experts track a disturbing trend. Rates of teen mental illness start to climb. There are lots of reasons for this. FOMO is a big one. Fear of missing out, in case you don't know what FOMO stands for. Think about it. Social media feeds are basically a highlight reel of other people's lives. By comparison, they make our mundane lives feel, well, mundane. That beautiful latte with the perfect latte art is so much better than the boring cup I just drank. Why wasn't I invited to that lit party on Saturday? I Netflixed, again. And because it's designed to be addictive, we lose our sense of boundaries. Teens are sleeping less because they're scrolling more. And it's not just the time spent scrolling, it's all that blue light that keeps us awake too, tricking our brains into thinking we should be awake. And then there's the fact that those corporations who intermediate so much of our lives on the internet understand that the single most important thing they can do to keep us scrolling is to scare us or piss us off. So they've devised algorithms that show us the worst of each other to keep us enraged or afraid, which, of course, leaves us enraged and afraid. And rather than reassure ourselves that the world is not, in fact, an evil, scary place by spending time with the people we love, social media displaces in-real-life interactions with the online versions of one another, sending us through the doom spiral one more time. Rather than community groups or pickup leagues, we watch TikTok. For folks right around my age or older, we spent the most formative years of our lives outside the bounds of social media. We built the social muscles to live offline, even if they've deeply atrophied through so much time online. So it's easy for some of us to think of social media as a choice. But for younger folks who've grown up in the era of social media, ubiquity defines their social environment. It's so built into the social infrastructure of their lives that opting out becomes nearly impossible. It means simply walking away from the platforms that intermediate so much of how they even live and interact. Which is why the Surgeon General's advisory last week is so critical. It recognizes the crisis of teen mental illness for what it is, and one of the most important circumstances that's driving it. Late last year, the California Endowment did a benchmark poll of young people to understand the crisis from their perspective. The findings were staggering. More than three quarters, 75% of the young people surveyed reported anxiety. More than half reported depression. A third, one in three of them, reported suicidal thinking. Those numbers would have been unfathomable a few decades ago, but frankly, they're unsurprising today. I wanted to understand a bit more about what's driving them, so I reached out to Dr. Tony Aydin, Senior Vice President at the California Endowment, and true to form, he suggested that it wouldn't be enough to get his perspective. We needed to hear from the young folks at the heart of the crisis. He suggested I speak to Leslie Campos, a youth organizer and entrepreneur, about the work they're doing together to address the crisis too here's my admittedly lovely conversation with Leslie Campos and Dr. Tony Aiton. Okay, can you introduce yourself at the tape?
1: Hi, everyone. My name is Leslie Campos. I am here today as a representation of the Biz which is a social enterprise that focuses on educational consulting, lifestyle curation, and youth development platform. Um, and we bring opportunities to our youth, specifically Black and brown youth, through communities. I have been part of the program for the past, year, year and a half, and it has been an amazing experience. I myself went through the program and got a grant. I got my first grant through the Bistube, and it was a beautiful opportunity, and I was able to start my own project, which I'm also the founder and executive director of Soyhood. And Soyhood is a social enterprise and streetwear brand that focuses on, on uplifting Black and brown youth through creativity. I also work with... Um, to age population during the day and work with um, housing. So I work in the LA area and do work around problem solving and prevention and evictions with youth in the, com- in the community.
0: All right, keeps you, keeps you super busy. I'm super glad that you found some time to, to join us today. Uh, Anthony.
2: And hello everybody, my name's Tony Aiton. I'm the Senior Vice President at the California Endowment, which is California's largest health foundation. And our focus is really on trying to create equity. Uh, Working with grassroots communities to build power, to change the story about who we are as Californians, and to invest in fundamental um, policy that creates meaningful opportunity for all Californians. And we're highly engaged in working with young people across the state because we feel like young people are rocket fuel for change.
0: Well, I, I certainly agree. You know, Tony and Leslie, you, you all come at this from um, different perspectives, but uh, but in some respects, a, a joint perspective. Um, Leslie, I'm going to start with you. And I want to ask you, you know, as you think about your community of peers, how is mental health uh, affecting your generation? What are the kinds of things that you hear from your friends and, and your colleagues? I,
1: first of all, being a first um, genantina, growing up with being a kid of immigrants I often think a lot of people in my community and especially the youth that I work with the the conversation around mental health right like I feel like oftentimes in our communities our families we don't have these conversations like we don't talk about mental health I feel like oftentimes especially like being a kid of immigrant we when we try to bring that up, it's easily shut down, right? So how do we start shifting the conversations? And I think now, like just looking back in our community and just working with our youth now, like how do we provide safe spaces, right? So I think a lot, yeah, about that, like the stigmatization around mental health. And I think about how our resources, right? Lack of resources within communities of color. I see us working in housing, I think about also as well, the lack of resources within housing programs and how housing is tied to a lot of mental health as well, right? And being in the front line, I see a lot of that being tied into stability and how stability also impacts our mental health as individuals. And I've seen the process of how our youth who come from the streets in survival mode, right? How when they get housed or like they get their basic needs met, it does help a lot and shift a lot of the mental health, right? And just seeing that, like I see a lot of like housing, just like basic rights and creating more cultural spaces for for youth specifically as well, that's very important. I think oftentimes like when we look at therapy or solutions for youth, we also have to provide cultural background, right? Also, appropriate therapy, right? So, making sure our youth, Black and Brown youth, are connected to the right resources that are actually are culturally appropriate for them.
0: And Tony, you come at this from uh, the perspective of a former health official, now with one of the most important uh, foundations focused on uh, health and, and health justice and equity uh, in California, in particular. But but your work is is really uh, national in scope. I want to ask you, what got you in the California Endowment interested in this issue? Why did you feel like you really needed to put a poll out there and shed light on the challenges that, uh, that this, this generation of young folks are facing?
2: Well, it's, you know, quite frankly, it, the issue kind of like reared up in our faces. I mean, we, we recognized even before the pandemic that many of our young, peop- many of our young people are really struggling. And we were doing work in 14 low-income communities across the state of California, trying to organize people and help them hold systems accountable for more equity. And part of that process was bringing people together and having conversations. And our young people were telling us about the trauma that they were experiencing in, in every aspect of their lives. It was really quite astounding and we had to recognize the fact that in our society we create stress incubators places where young people are basically bereft of all of the resources that they need to be able to manage their healthy development their the infrastructure for youth development has been absolutely obliterated the boys and girls clubs the you know the police activities leagues the pop Warner football Little League Baseball, all of that stuff literally doesn't exist um, in many parts of the state of California and other parts of the country. And never mind, you know, access to things like summer camps or music programs and the like. People can't afford that. So what we were seeing was that young people, uh, they would tell us from 2.15 in the afternoon for the rest of the day, they had literally nothing to do. And when that's the case, they found essentially the youth development was happening in gangs and other kind of organized activities that, um, you know, the youth themselves would pull together. So we felt like we had neglected this a generation of, of young people, particularly low-income young people in our rural part of the state in the Central Valley and in, in the Inland Empire, but also in Oakland and L.A. and San Francisco. And our feeling was that this was already in crisis before the pandemic. Then the pandemic hit. And that coupled with, you know, young people being pulled out of schools, being on Zoom for, for, you know, their education, uh, the social media bullying that was happening and continues to happen. um, All of this just basically synergistically and cumulatively created enormous stress in the lives of these young people and many of young people started talking about suicidality and, you know, talking about, you know, in some cases, you know, acted out in in violent ways. So you you couldn't confront this problem from just one angle. You saw it being impacted by so many different things that were happening in society and it wasn't just, you know, a youth here or a youth there. It was the, the bulk of young people were telling us day in, day out about the trauma that they were having to navigate in their daily lives. And we just couldn't look away anymore.
0: America Dissected is brought to you by Miracle Made, as was my sleep last night. Whether you want to get more fit, be a better parent, or get more done at work, there is one thing that'll help, and that's better sleep. With Miracle-Made Sheets, you can tap into the power of self-cooling temperature regulation, which has been shown to improve deep sleep quality by over 20%. Miracle-Made Sheets use silver-infused fabrics, originally inspired by NASA, and they're thermal-regulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long. Miracle Sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands and feel as nice, if not nicer, than bed sheets used by some five-star hotels. Stop sleeping on bacteria. Clean sheets mean less bacteria to clog your pores and fewer breakouts and other skin problems. Go to TryMiracle.com slash AD to try Miracle Made Sheets today. And with Father's Day right around the corner, this is the perfect way to give someone you love the gift of better and more luxurious sleep. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. America Dissected is brought to you by Bookshop.org. Y'all, in my day job, I run a large organization, so I'm always trying to read up on different approaches to thinking about leadership. And most recently, I've been reading the book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lancioni. Whether you're searching for a buzzy new memoir, riveting true crime, or a fantasy novel that sweeps you away, Bookshop.org has just the book you're looking for. Their online bookstore is stocked with compelling titles that will keep you entertained for hours. From Mary Roach's Stiff to Spare Parts by Paul Craddock, there's something for everyone. Book recommendations on Bookshop.org also come from real people who love books, not algorithms who don't. And the best part, when you purchase from Bookshop.org, you're supporting local independent bookstores, so they'll be around for all of us to enjoy in the future. Bookshop.org has raised over $25 million for local bookstores. They're unapologetically anti-Amazon and believe local bookstores are essential community hubs that foster culture, curiosity, and a love of reading. Join them in helping local bookstores survive and thrive. Visit bookshop.org slash crooked and use code AD to get 10% off your next order. That's code AD at checkout for 10% off your next order. And you all did a a landmark uh, poll to understand what what the impacts really are. And I'm going to dig into the, the stressors a bit in particular with you, Leslie, but what were the, the broad take-home uh, top lines for you? You know, when you put that poll in the field, what did you expect to find
2: and then what did you actually find? In terms of top line, um, we had the U.S. Surgeon General come out to California because uh, we had a relationship with him and his office and uh, he was talking about a report that he would put out that was looking at young people and mental health and he's more recently put out one on loneliness in America. And he was very concerned about the, just the percentages of young people that were expressing um, significant mental health challenges. And so in passing in conversations with him, we recognized what I was just describing earlier, the level of trauma that young people were having to navigate on a day, daily basis. And so we decided we were gonna have a summit in California And so we had the U.S. Surgeon General, we had the California Surgeon General, uh, and a number of officials from the state. And then we brought in young people and we wanted the young people uh, from across the state to just inform the Surgeon General about what their day to day realities are like and the solutions that they had seen work well. Um, And we can talk about that, you know, a little bit later. And so this we had a two day session and it was it was Shocking the level of distress that the young people were describing. And and particularly when I when I say distress, I'm talking about, you know, levels of suicidality and, you know, folks that were acting out in ways that you or I would act out if we were under that amount of stress. They didn't have the resources to cope with it. And they were just facing stressor after stressor after stressor, including, you know, being on the verge of homelessness or being actively homeless. Um and and lacking basic resources like food. So so this is we decided to do the poll to just get some numbers, you know, around these issues and and so that's what you saw and Leslie can talk about that as well.
1: Yes, so I'm actually. Um, so this is my first. Uh, the past couple of months has been my first time doing the research and just kind of really getting into all of this. But I'm part of the Youth Mental Wellness Committee through the Bisstoob, and that's where we're doing the research on which we're actively doing research right now. We're providing. Um, we're providing. A survey to our community of our care network, which is also California Youth Rising. And that's a small uh, care project of the BISTU, where any youth ages like eight, um, 18, 30, because we expand what youth really means. If you think about the, like that idea that 18 is like into adulthood, but that's not the reality of life, I feel like youth is expansive. And I love that the BizSoup has been able to expand what youth looks like. But with that, we've been able to really um, do service and provide funds for youth in our community to do the service which we created that really center the voice of youth in the community and what they want and what they look like. So programs that take ideas and take all these numbers and all these ideas and try to create, right, what the solution looks like for just like in the future. And a lot of what I found, yeah, like I think what Anthony was saying, like loneliness, like I think with like capitalism like we've really shifted away from community and like I think now with the pandemic it even got a little worse and just like with us dealing with our own mental health and I think with the age demographic we've seen a lot like at least in my experience 18 to 24 18 to 25 we see a lot of heightenance of mental health symptoms coming up that's like the prime age where we see a lot because that's when we're going into adulthood that's when we're dealing with like daily lives. Um, We're we're supposed to have housing, all this, right? So there's a lot of pressure coming. But yes, a lot of that, we've seen a lot of that in the studies and also just in my general, like my own, like, yeah, like being in this field, I think there's like a lot of at individual level, like we have to really do a lot of inner work too, as well, to come from a trauma-informed perspective when it comes to youth and and dealing with you folks with high mental needs instead of criminalizing them and being like, oh, like when things pop off, how can we come as a community, right? How can we shift that narrative? Um, but yes, that's a little bit of a kind of what I was saying.
0: Well, I, I really appreciate that perspective. And, you know, just to, to step back, I'm, I'm 38. Um, and so I'm in this like weird, odd place in my life where I can't credibly call myself young anymore. Um, but... I came up in a time where I feel like I share a lot more life experience with, with younger folks than with, with older folks, especially considering how much has changed in the course of our shared lifetime around the ubiquity of the internet and the way that we manifest and intermediate social experience through it problematically. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I think about my generation and, you know, we had the 90s and the 90s were pretty glorious, I'm not gonna lie, right? So so you talked about stability earlier and the stability that came in that, right? I I, I turned 13, uh, sorry, 16 in the year 2000. And uh, most of my youth had been behind me at that point. And that's when things started to get pretty rocky, right? I remember 9-11 like it was yesterday and, you know, I'm a, a M- Middle Eastern, uh young man so that 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 really created a social milieu that changed my experience and then i graduated college into the great recession i um raised my 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 first toddler in the midst of the pandemic and all that was pretty bad but then i think about the fact that if i was 22 right and i have a younger sister who's about 22 you were born into the post 9 11 era for most of your life our country's been at war in two different places the Great Recession was when you were a kid and the number of people who lost homes and the instability that came with that in childhood, watched their parents lose jobs, is pretty immense. And then you think about you're trying to you know, get your first job out of high school or go to college in the midst of the worst pandemic in 100 years. That's some kind of instability, right? And I'd love to hear, Leslie, your perspective on the role that our national experience has played in shaping the experience of young people. Because like, you know, the before this, the going, the going, I hate to say it, joke was like, you know, if somebody grew up in the depression, it scarred them. It changed the way they thought about things, right? And I think for a lot of this generation, we're gonna be like, oh no, they came up in the recession or they came up in the pandemic. And, you know, when you when your, 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 your great-grandchildren are like, yo, why do they do that? They'd be like, oh, it's a pandemic kid. Um, I, I'd love to hear a little bit about that instability and the ways that that shapes the experience of, you know, trauma and challenge that people in your generation face?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. So I think this, what, what I've seen a lot with this generation, a lot, and is a lot more youth, a lot more folks are speaking up about mental health. That's like one thing, definitely, especially with social media we've seen a lot more conversations. I've noticed a lot, and at least in the youth that I work with, my, the youth directly in my life, like I think for me coming from being a social worker, me being in the front lines, me being trained to come from a trauma-informed lens. Like, I've seen a lot of our generation start having these conversations around mental health, start having these conversations in our families. I, from my ex- own experience, have started these conversations and creating a space where our our youth are able to talk about what's going on, to talk about depression, to talk about the realities of life and how we experience this in our everyday life. And, you know, oftentimes, like, our parents could be a little hard when it comes to, like, dealing with depression, you know, I think something I've seen a lot in, as like our youth coming together and like creating spaces for us to have dialogues. Right. And it's important to have like also like programs that are youth-led and youth-focused. Um, but going, yeah, going back to your question, yeah, there's been a lot more conversations around what healing looks like. And I think that's what's really yeah. different now with um, our youth now is they they're, they're Understanding the tools and finally realizing that they have the power to heal themselves and connect and take therapy and really like even like when you think about therapy, I know growing up for me like therapy was something was like not accepted or like is always at least in like um, a lot of Latino cultures is like oh like that's like you're crazy, but it's like no, it's it's what is needed. It's like we need to tap into ourselves and I think there's a lot of push with this generation trying to. Focus on healing, and I think that, that that's a lot. What has changed, and also like social media has had a great impact on that as well.
0: So what I'm hearing you saying is almost like so many folks in your generation have gone through so many big society-wide traumas that it's almost like the generation had no choice but to like face up to it and be like, "Yo, this is this is not okay," and and we got it. We got to deal with this. And I think I think you're right um, that. You know, when I think about uh, this generation, I told you, I have, a, I have a younger brother who's eight years younger and a younger sister who's 15 years younger. So my brother just turned 30 and my sister is 20, I think she's just, she's about to turn 23. Um, and the difference between us, right, we sort of, the, the chasm between us is from a from a generational standpoint, like all the things that have changed, you know, my sister is so much more versed in the language of mental health and the conversations about mental health. And I think you're right that social media played a really big part of that. The other part of it, and I want to get both your perspectives on this, the other part of it is that I feel like social media has also, in so many ways, gobbled up a lot of the means of healing, right? like It creates this place where you can have a conversation about mental health but the things that really sustain us tend to be in-person nurturing relationships, right? And I feel like um, the corporations that, that, that manage social media, they've realized that their real competition wasn't just each other. Their real competition was all the time you spend actually looking somebody in the face and talking to them. And so the, they made more and more of your or our social interactions uh, mediated by their companies so that they could sell us stuff via ads, right? And so we're like, we're having a conversation, but we're like not doing the thing on the other end of the conversation that has to fix it. And I think about this because I was a freshman in college when when the Facebook came out, right? When when it When it first started, it was a Mark Zuckerberg production. We were like, this is amazing. What a better way to connect with our friends. And then soon enough, right? We weren't connecting with our friends. We were like liking their stuff, but it wasn't the same conversation that we'd had. And so... You know, it's odd. I kind of lived through that transition and watched my younger siblings uh, work through it. And so it's had both both upside and downside. So I'm gonna pose this question to you, Tony, and then I wanna get your perspective on it too, Leslie. Thinking about your youth, Tony, and the the nurturing relationships that you had, and then reflecting on the ways that um, this generation uh, interacts, what are the qualitative differences that you see and how do you see them playing out in terms of the way that you might manage the bumps and bruises of life?
2: Wow, what a fantastic question. Um, well, let me just start by saying that, you know, part of the reason that I have no doubt that this is a serious issue was, you know, looking at the polling data and seeing that, you know, 75% of young people felt that this, that mental health was a serious issue in their lives, and you know, majority of them felt like they didn't belong. And belonging is something. But when I was a young person, I felt, despite being a black kid growing up in a largely white environment, um, there were institutions that essentially helped us develop our skills, mm-hmm. our talents, our interests. There were places to play sports. There were places where you could gain leadership. Um, this was all part of the milieu that I grew up with. And what was critical in those institutional settings were that they, they created a platform for deep relationships, both with people that were your age, but also with adults. And this is one of the things that we measure in um, youth development is meaningful relationships with adults who are not your parents, you know, and opportunities to exercise leadership and somebody who believes in your future, believes that you have a gift or a talent or a skill that can be developed and contribute to, you know, the well-being of society. And so I think in my generation, and I grew up in the, you know, 70s and 80s, um, that stuff was just more readily available. When we spent time in, in, in the Central Valley um, doing the work that we're doing now, um, and as I mentioned, young people would tell us that after 2.15, they had nowhere to go. Um, gone was all that infrastructure. We just couldn't find it. And it was so bad, in fact, in a place called Merced in, in California Central Valley. Um, young people were saying, you know, in the middle of the summer, the temperature gets up to 106 degrees. And the city of Merced had closed the public pools because they felt they couldn't invest the resources in lifeguards for the pools. Wow. Hmm. So they shut the pools down in 106 degree temperature. And this is the difference between when I grew up, where you had infrastructure, you had opportunities as a young person to forge those kinds of meaningful relationships with others. And and help, that helped you develop a sense of belonging, that you were part of, of society, people knew your story, you knew other people's story, you were seen, you had a voice. This is a fundamental human need and we have essentially stripped the infrastructure for that kind of youth development from our society and replaced it with a cell phone where there's an enormous amount of a diminution of people's self-esteem in that setting through bullying, through judging themselves against the lives of others who are portraying their wealth and their, you know, mm. their existences. And so I, I fundamentally recognize that we have a deep problem in this society. We have to rebuild, you know, starting from the ground up, a sense of meaningful belonging uh, for young people in this society because we are in crisis. The majority of these young people are recognizing fundamental issues with their mental health. And we cannot sustain this kind of status. It will it will erupt in ways that we can't even predict.
0: Mm. Leslie, you know, your generation was or is internet native. Uh, and, you know, what's interesting to me is that your generation is about to look at the generation after you and be like, oh man, they came up in the AI native times. Uh, so <laughs> I was like, I can't believe they're friends with a machine. Anyway, um, <laughs> um t- tell me, tell me a little bit about what it's like to to have come up in a time when the internet is so ubiquitous that you don't remember a time without it. And, you know, as you think about your reflection on Anthony's or uh, on Tony's generation or on mine, how how does that show up in the way that you all think about the relationships that you share the interactions that you uh, engage in um and then i i want to talk a little bit about bistupe because it seems like you know the, and I, I see this in your generation really pushing back against it but tell me about a little bit about kind of your reflection from the you know the 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 younger generation looking older
1: yes so ew yeah uh, again social media could be 50 50, there's really dope opportunities to build community. But there's also the other dark side of the social, the media, right? And I think, yeah, yeah, I just want to emphasize what Anthony was saying. Yeah, I think it's very important to provide spaces for community and building community. I feel like now with our generation, <laughs> a lot of youth do get stuck to their like, cell phone or get so obsessed with being liked. And being part of the social media community and, uh, you know, like, especially like growing up in LA now, we see a lot of, like, influencer life and, like, all that, like, right? But it's also, like, I think it's very important to also create spaces. I think for myself, right, I reflect on a lot and the work that I do. How can I create a space where our youth understand their individuality and the importance of their uniqueness, which is how I started Soy Hood, which is... Uh, we focus a lot on storytelling and the importance of our individual experiences and how these experiences can create mass movements. How w- with each conversation, each dialogue that we have, we are planting the seeds for our youth, regardless with social media, or not not social media, like where we want to be able to provide our youth creative opportunities, right? So yes, I think just reflecting, yeah, it's been, it's kind of, uh, so I kind of grew up in the age of where like, yeah, I was, I, I remember MySpace coming up, everything coming up, all that, that's like, and it just being TikTok, everybody just, that culture is like, we have to learn to also practice keeping our like community alive too, outside of social media. And I think that's kind of been my reflection in the past year is how do we do work outside just social media, but also creating spaces where our youth are able to have community, where they're able to show up and authentically and Just, again, tapping into their inner selves.
0: The national youth-led movement fighting back against the assault on Black studies, libraries, and the freedom to learn is gaining momentum. In an effort to support the movement, Marguerite Casey Foundation is thrilled to help get the newly released book, Our History Has Always Been Contraband. In defense of Black Studies, out as widely as possible so it can serve as a resource to all working to ensure the accurate teaching of Black history in the United States. Co-edited by Colin Kaepernick, Robin D.G. Kelly, and Dr. Kianga Yamada Taylor, our history has always been contraband. Brings together more than fifty canonical texts and authors in Black Studies, along with six new essays. Get your free ebook today at CaseyGrants.org/freebook. That's org backslash freebook America Dissected is brought to you by Article. It is officially summer. It was like 90 degrees today. The best thing about summer is getting to do all the favorite things you like indoors, outside. Sharing meals, watching movies, falling asleep on the sofa, accidentally. Everything's better al fresco. Articles' curated catalog of outdoor furniture is here to help you do all your favorite things this summer. They've got everything you need to really make things your own. From outdoor sofas to dining sets to decor. Article believes in delightful design for every home. And thanks to their online-only model, they have some really delightful prices too. They're curated assortments of mid-century modern, coastal, industrial, wait for it, Scandi and Boho, designed to make furniture shopping simple. Article offers fast, affordable shipping across the U.S. and Canada. Plus, they won't leave you waiting around. And when Scandi fights with Boho, look, they're there to make peace. You pick the delivery time and they'll send you updates every step of the way. Article's knowledgeable customer care team is there when you need them to make sure your experience is smooth and stress-free. Look, I love shopping at Article. They've got beautiful furniture that's easy to find online. It comes in like two weeks or less. It's shipped competently and boxed well, and it lasts for a very, very long time. You too can enjoy Article because well, Article is offering America Dissected listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com/ad, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com/ad for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. I remember talking to a, a, um, a friend of my younger brother and uh, we had met and, and he was like, yo, you're like a real life version of your Twitter. And for a minute, I was like, nah, man, my Twitter is a Twitter version of my, me in real life. Like, and it was one of those things where I was like, oh, wow. Like I'll, there, there are a lot of people who, who know me as a character on social media. And it's almost like we're all performing our own avatar. Then I had another interaction with a friend and he was like, oh, you know, you're always posting on, 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 uh, Insta or whatever. And it, it makes me feel like I'm not, you know, I'm not out there fighting the good fight. And I was like, the, the, the good fight doesn't happen on my Instagram. Like, if that's where you think the good fight is, like we're, we're missing, we're missing this. So I've tried to be a lot more conscious about what I put out there and the ways that it shapes the ways other people think about themselves. Cause FOMO is real. And rarely does anybody be like, hey, I woke up this morning and my my back kind of hurts and I had soggy cereal for breakfast and, uh, (laughs) and then, you know, I went to work and it was rainy and I got to work and I got yelled at by my boss. And then I sat there for a while trying to work with IT to get my computer going. And then I read some emails and answered some emails. And then I went home, hung out with my cat and watched Netflix, which wasn't that great. And I went to bed. Because right? that's most of our days, right? And, and nobody ever posts that. It's like, oh, look at my perfect coffee. Look at my amazing like trip that I took, right? And then you're sitting there, you know, eating your mushy cereal and answering emails, being like, why am I on an awesome trip? Why is my coffee not perfect? And, you know, and, and, it, and it shapes the, the way that people interact with, with the world. And I got to imagine that if more and more of your life is intermediated that way, the ways that it makes you feel both absorbed by that comparison and disconnected from those people experiencing those things has to be like devastating. Um, you you are you are actively taking this on, and both of you are uh, solving this problem in in different ways. Uh, Leslie, I want to start with you. Tell us a little bit about Soy Hood and 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 BizStoop and the kinds of venues, the space that they give you. To be able to create that meaning and that connectiveness and that community, um, th- that that is so important, and so many folks are missing.
1: Yes. Yeah, so i um, I got it plugged in with Bistoup back in 2021, and I had heard about them through a colleague who I went to college with. And back in college, I did a lot of work, community organizing work around food, and food accessibility, and work with youth and storytelling and housing. And um, I got connected with this person and uh, I love them so much. They basically were like, we see you doing your work, Like, come through, apply to the, to the seed grant, which is a seed grant. And basically they fund you a, a seed, what it is, a seed grant, right? And they'll fund your idea and then you'll be like, there's a lot of really dope opportunities here. So I went ahead and basically applied for this and Pitch Soy Hood. And that was the first time I ever... I I just was like, okay, like I'm gonna think of an idea. Like, what am I gonna think of? I've always thought of like, how can I intersect me being first gen Latina, growing up in LA, single mother, being a kid of immigrant, um, being Oaxacan, right? And how do I build in all my community and the youth that I work with? So that's how Soiku can be. I pitched it. And then I got funded and that was the first grant I ever received. And honestly, to this day, that is a life changing moment that happened in my life. Because once I finished, I, I, I was I went through the process. It was like eight to 10 month process where I learned a lot about writing a grant. I learned a lot about creating my first report. I've never done this. I've never had spaces to be able to learn about financial literacy and just having Desiree and the whole network of bistube like i've been able to really network with folks after i finished my first grant and we did the 10 month month 8 to 10 month cycle we had our first retreat and in that retreat i just remember like meeting folks who I've been working alongside like online but like getting to meet them in person it was just amazing like it was life changing and getting to meet other like minded people who are doing work community work organizing with youth and just providing space like it was beautiful to see in person and just continue to build relationships where I've been continuing to build relationships. And with the Bistoupe specifically, I've been able to be part. I actually in the past couple of months, like I got accepted to the Young Funders Committee, which is like a committee built by the youth for the youth where we review grants, which was the first grant I received. So now I'm on a chair and I, we make the decisions mm. and like we like it is an amazing opportunity because I've n- never thought I would be in a position to do that. Also being part of like the um Youth Mental Wellness Group, where we're doing research on how to create uh spaces for ancestral healing, how to center youth's voices. Like these are things I never thought I would be doing. And now that I am, like I love what I do. And I think just learning a lot and everything, like even from like when we had our youth mental wellness, like everything we do, we had weekly meetings and we would talk about topics, right? And I will take that back to my personal life and how can I implement that in the community of youth that I work with, right? So it's always constantly learning and providing space for us to be one, safe, coming from a trauma-informed perspective, I think is very important. Um, And just being, learning what it is, right? And having conversations about healing, I think, again, right? And it's revolution to have these people in our lives. And yeah, I'm very thankful about the work that I'm doing with Bistube and like, with Soyhood, I've been able to, like in the past year, because Bistu was my seed and it was the foundation of where I started. I am now like, I had started as a project, but now I, what, like a year and a half now, I am a streetwear brand. I've been tapping into other communities in LA where I got funding. I'm going to work in the first, our, our first merch, which is called Planting the Seeds. And that one is dedicated to youth growing up in LA. And each individual who I had modeled are, are youth who I've impacted through my work and sharing their stories and the impact that they've had and, and just, you know, and just uplifting youth. So, yeah, it's been, that was the seed, but now just watching it evolve and staying active in the community and making resources accessible to Black and brown youth has been rewarding.
0: That's uh, amazing. What I What I hear you describing is self-actualization in community, right? And if you take the, analogy of a seed, a seed grows into a plant which produces a fruit, and then the fruit produces its own seeds. And that's exactly what you're doing. You're you're passing that forward in a really beautiful way. And you you can see, we talk a lot about um, the the broader, quote, upstream determinants of health, the things that shape downstream health. And what you're describing isn't uh, traditional treatment for mental health. But what it is is it's addressing the things that are lacking in society that allow mental illness to take hold, right? And it's exactly that self actualization in community that I that 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 is that you're d- describing just so beautifully. And that work is amazing. Uh, and um, you know anyone anyone who's interested in in Soy Hood um, Streetwear, where where they can where can they go to find it?
1: Oh, on Instagram, y'all follow us on Soy Hood. <laughs> so we're doing our first drop that's coming up in a couple of weeks. But yes. So- where everything that is basically going to be helping funding our youth programming and continue the work that I've been doing through Soyhood, And yeah, this is just the beginning and I'm really inspired to continue, but yeah, Soyhood, and then uh, the website is going live in a couple of weeks as well.
0: Dude, I, I really hope you all have a soy hoodie because I would totally buy that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait for the next drop. <laughs>
0: Uh, you know, and, and Tony as as, uh, Leslie is describing that, you know, this is a podcast where so people can't see your face, but uh, you've got real, uh, proud big bro vibes, um, as she's talking about it. Tell us a little bit about, about your perspective on the work and the kind of spaces that you all are creating, uh, at the California endowment to, to create exactly this kind of, um, opportunity for folks.
2: Yeah, well, Leslie spoke to it so well. It just is it's always so heartening to hear that. That's what gives me hope and optimism in this work. The um you know, the work that we're doing is trying to essentially raise the profile of this kind of innovative work that organizations like Leslie's are doing. Um you know, California has taken this very seriously. The governor has proposed $4.7 billion for a children and youth behavioral health initiative in California. And, you know, what we're trying to do is help guide the implementation of that initiative. And you spoke to it earlier. The traditional mental health approach is, you know, somebody in a white coat, you know, sitting in a, you know, in an office, you know, in a 30 or 60 minute kind of, you know, session, where they, you know, presumably dispense some wisdom or insight and help people manage their mental illness through therapy. And I'm not knocking that. That's absolutely important and necessary. But it's a model that doesn't really fit as well for young people. And what we've discovered uh, from listening to young people and looking at innovative models across the state is that the peer-to-peer models seem to be more effective for young people they really do uh, benefit from having somebody who's similarly situated, culturally you know, understands them, maybe even identifies with the same culture or ethnicity, um, has been through the same kind of experiences that young people are going through, understands social media, understands our education system, understands the economics of being a young people uh, in this day and age. And, and so we're trying to showcase those kinds of models across the state so that uh, a significant amount of this investment that the state of California is making will go to building out infrastructure for peer-to-peer um, mental health work in California, in schools, in communities, and even in uh, clinical settings. So so this is a, a very, very fundamental aspect of this work, demedicalizing um, behavioral health care is absolutely critical. Destigmatizing um, behavioral health care in general is huge, particularly for uh, communities of color and in non-English speaking communities and, and working to bring the, the care at the right place at the right time. And so if kids spend a lot of time in school and they spend a lot of time in community, And these are the settings in which they need these kinds of resources available to them when they either are having crisis or when they're having, you know, an issue that's, uh, you know, flaring for them. They can't wait three weeks to go see some therapist in an office. They need to be able to deal with these things early. And the evidence suggests more effectively uh, when we have a trained peer in the right setting in which they feel trust in that human connection.
0: Well, we really, really appreciate both of you creating that space. Our guests today were Leslie Campos. She's the founder of Soy Hood and an organizer with Biz Stoop, and Dr. Tony Aiton, Senior Vice President for Programs and Partnerships at the California Endowment. Really, really appreciate you both um, coming on, sharing your perspectives on such a critical issue and for joining us for today's show.
2: Thank you for having us. It's been a
0: pleasure.
1: Thank you so much. This is really beautiful.
0: As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. According to reporting from the New York Times and others, Dr. Mandy Cohen is set to be America's 20th CDC director. Dr. Cohen would be a strong appointment. She's a general internist by training and comes to the role with government experience in several different agencies. She served in multiple roles at the Departments of Health and Human Services and Veterans Affairs during the Obama administration, as well as a stint as health secretary in North Carolina under a Republican governor through the pandemic. Government is, well, it's a beast. And the CDC director has to be able to manage both the fast-moving politics at the top and the slow-moving bureaucracies at the bottom at the same time. Without experience, that job can prove exceedingly challenging. And that's exactly what vexed outgoing director Dr. Rochelle Walensky as she attempted to navigate the COVID pandemic. That said, Walensky was asked to walk into a nearly impossible circumstance, a pandemic raging, public trust at an all-time low. And I credit anyone willing to serve the public in those kinds of circumstances. And all of us owe her a debt of gratitude, mistakes and all. Cohen's role, though, will look a lot different. Her job is to help shepherd the CDC into what it was always supposed to be, a nimble, agile, dynamic organization designed to meet the moment in the midst of a public health crisis rather than the lumbering, pseudo-academic agency it's become. She's got her work cut out for her. But if history's any tell, I think she's up to it. In other government
1: news… President Biden signed legislation lifting the nation's debt ceiling. The president's signature on the bipartisan debt deal came with just two days to spare before an unprecedented default.
0: That's great news if you, well, care about the economy not falling into free fall. But it did come with some significant cuts to things anyone listening to this podcast should care about. First, here's the could have been way worse part. The original Republican bill would have imposed serious work requirements on Medicaid that would have definitely stolen healthcare from millions of Americans caught in a quagmire between working to have healthcare and having health enough to work. It also could have robbed more funding from critical future-focused things like next-generation vaccines, long COVID research, and efforts to shore up our broken pharmaceutical supply chain, which, fortunately, it did not go after. But here's the bad part. It takes about $10 billion away from the Public Health and Social Services Emergency Fund, literally taking away from pandemic preparedness, which you might think we'd want to invest in given what we just went through. The CDC will also face about a $1.5 billion cut. It also cuts about $3 trillion over the next 10 years in domestic discretionary spending. That includes the budgets of the National Institutes of Health, America's Biomedical Research Engine, the CDC, and the FDA. So yeah, no, that's not great. It also cuts funding for critical housing and education programs. If you're a regular listener, you've definitely heard me talk about the, quote, social determinants of health. Those are things like, well, housing and education. And make no mistake, while we don't usually count those against national health spending, that's a failure in how we account. These cuts will reverberate through our society in ways that make people sick, especially folks who've been marginalized by public policy like this throughout our history, low-income black and brown folks in particular. Finally, a new CDC report found that 40% of foodborne illness outbreaks at restaurants begin with sick workers. I want you to think about what that means. First, that sign that requires people to wash their hands is there for a reason. But more broadly, this speaks to the way we do labor policy in this country. Remember, those social determinants of health? Well, sick people shouldn't have to go to work. But in this country, where low-wage workers so often lack paid sick leave, they do. And when they have to go to work, handling our food, well, guess what happens? It's another reminder that health is a lot bigger than healthcare. That's it for today. On your way out, don't forget to rate and review. Guys, look, I tell you this every week, but not all of you rate and review. So please, please do that. It goes a long way. Also, if you love the show and want to rep us, I hope to drop by the Crooked Store for some American Dissected merch. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producers are Tara Terpstra and Emilek Frank. Vasilis Svetopoulos mixes and masters the show. Production support from Ari Schwartz. Our theme song is by Takao Sazawa and Alex Uguera. Our executive producers are Leo Duran, Sarah Geismer, Michael Martinez, and me, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Your host. Thanks for listening. This show is for general information and entertainment purposes only. It's not intended to provide specific healthcare or medical advice and should not be construed as providing healthcare or medical advice. Please consult your physician with any questions related to your own health. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the host and his guests and do not necessarily present the views and opinions of Wayne County, Michigan, or its Department of Health, Human, and Veteran
1: Services.